The other day, I was talking to an engineer about how he was given six months to explore an idea. He had the time and the money just to see if there was something really there. He described it as a dream. To get that kind of freedom and trust to take a risk, he knew it was rare. More and more companies are looking for ways to test lots of ideas to find the ones that will result in a big return. But how do leaders figure out where to focus their people and their money? Welcome to 360 Real Time, a Steelcase podcast with behind-the-scenes conversations on the research impacting the places where people work, learn, and heal. I'm Katie Pace, and today we're going to try to answer that question. How can companies figure out where to place their bets? David Kidder spends his days teaching large enterprises how to operationalize a growth mindset. Kidder is CEO of Bionic, as well as an author and serial entrepreneur. We caught up with him on the phone. David, let's start by talking about what's changing today. Why is growth such a buzzword right now for organizations? It's not about efficiency or stability anymore. It seems that it's all about growth. Um, well, there's so many outside forces now that are challenging large companies. Uh, no large organization is not impacted by several large disruptors that are happening outside of them, particularly around software, AI, blockchain, advanced manufacturing, open innovation systems. The world is, as they describe, is exponentially moving with or against them in their marketplaces. And even the most accomplished companies today all face these outside challenges that they're trying to understand. Uh, When you ask a venture capitalist what degree of your success is timing and good fortune, they often say, you know, 80 plus percent is actually uh, are really being right and on time. What they're saying is, is that as good as they are, it's usually an outside force that leads them to new growth. And so if a company is, has an insular, inside-out view of the world, it becomes biased. They call this groupthink. Um, and so getting outside the organization and doing and building and discovering around those outside forces is critical to learning about how change is happening uh, related to their business. The other part is, is just around the concept of business model innovation. Very often, outcomes, services, solutions, technology is frankly just delivered differently. Customers want to buy it differently, experience it differently. And the sort of economic exchange or whatever the exchange of value, sometimes it's data, um, behavior, et cetera, is just fundamentally different than the way the organization knows how to work. Right. And you said a lot of organizations just aren't looking at these disruptions with the right lens. They have an addiction. Yeah, the addiction to being right. Um, Most leaders get to their jobs because they have good answers to problems that they understand and the marketplace understands, which makes them great at what exists. And the marketplace has rewarded leaders who can guide growth around efficiency and prediction. And so they use tools and planning tools, classic blueprint models, that really are very good at measuring a quarter-to-quarter view of the world. So they can sort of plan for three years and understand the major market levers with the knowledge that there are macro things in the environment that can affect them both economically as politically and um, even in their industries. But if you go beyond sort of three years in a day, the blueprint traditional planning model sort of falls apart because the markets and the technologies and the models change. And the speed and the rate of change is growing at a pace that often strips out the sort of planning value. So you have to move from a linear to a portfolio view of the world, from a total addressable marketplace view of the world to a total addressable problem or need. And what we're saying is, fundamentally, is that 
if you're a large organization trying to sort of capture the future and you're making two or three bets a year that are well-planned, that are supposed to deliver growth in the next 12 to 48 months, the model in which you go and try to do that is broken because the rate of change strips out the value of planning. So you can imagine if I move from three bets into a planning model to 30 bets into a problem-based portfolio view of the world from market to need or market to problem, TAM to TAP, um, we start to increase the odds that we're going to learn as fast or faster than else and we can discover the commercial truth and discover new growth. Can you tell us a little bit about how your team works? How are you able to help big companies? Sure. We're a four-and-a-half-year-old bootstrapped startup. We like to think of ourselves as sort of an army of entrepreneurs. We believe, as I pointed out earlier, the venture capital entrepreneurship are forms of management. So we go in and set up effectively operationalized venture capital funds. What are the actual problems in the world where they have an unfair advantage to solve new problems to the organization? And how do we go in on offense and go launch 50 solutions to that problem with the expectation that 90% of it's going to fail, just like a VC would would believe. 4.5% of all capital deployed returns 50% of all returns. This model is actually transforming the way they work and discover. And it's quite radical because the cost basis to do this is actually cheaper and faster than when they're working in the organization. So Bionic installs these growth OS. We've worked directly with the CEOs of GE, City, Nike, Exelon, Tyco, Mars, and others to build this model so they can go on offense and create new growth. And uh, it's working and having tremendous impact. What differences do you see between the startups and large organizations you're trying to help? These founder-led companies just fundamentally believe in radically different things. What they're trying to avoid is the stasis and the painful decline on the day two and day three mindsets that happen in a large organization. And how you get to that state is knowable. It's repetitive. They can see these things happen. And so they're trying to bring them back to a founder-led attitude of hunger and passion and ability to adapt and take risks with any sort of energy enthusiasm as you would in the first day of starting a company. They don't want to lose that. So that makes a lot of sense. It sounds great in theory, but how do you go into organizations with tens of thousands of employees and make this happen? Where do you start? Our model is really a top-down CEO-led organizational transformation that allows the permission and boundaries to remain wide to go after and solve new problems. This is a vital thing to understand because most organizations, they don't have a talent problem. They don't even have a money problem. They have a permissions problem. And it happens at the leadership level. Their permissions are too narrow. When they try to do new things, it has to fit their worldview of how they currently are economically rewarded. And because of the quarterly capitalism that drives their thinking, there isn't enough room, permissions, both in time, energy, and money, to go after things that aren't understood. And this is a very critical thing to recognize, which is great returns inside of portfolio theory are actually non-consensus decisions. They're decisions that very rarely anybody can really truly agree on. But when you have a high conviction founder and a high conviction investor who understand that, they back a high conviction, non-consensus view of the world that leads to discovery. And so what they're looking for is a voting architecture inside of how they invest that is sort of a signal of what would potentially lead to new growth because very often weird ideas actually turn into great things. When things are consensus and look like, quote, unquote, a good idea, they're often the worst returns because if they understand it, that means the entire marketplace understands it. 
And that means that in most cases, the growth doesn't exist. And so non-consensus, conviction-driven, venture model um, voting, so to speak, ideas is what we're looking for in discovering new things. That's interesting. So I know you have three sons, right? And when we talk to our kids, they seem to have this limitless imagination, but it's not always worth investing in. So how do you keep that curiosity and still get to those really good ideas? I'm raising, hopefully, future you know, founders of companies. And so I'm trying to teach them in the world several things. One is, what is the problem they care about most? What are they obsessed with? That, you know, where every 10 hours feels like one hour, right? Large companies need to ask themselves about what are the big problems or needs in the world that they actually have an unfair advantage to go win. And so while a 10-year-old might be completely irrationally optimistic around you know, their capabilities and their skills, so to speak, of going into new spaces, large companies are also, in many cases, irrationally optimistic about their own gifts and capabilities in going after new problems. Often they get their butts kicked for several reasons. Well, exactly. And that can scare people away from taking risks in the future, right? So can you figure out why that happens and how to go after the winners? The lenses you use to select ideas is critical to leading to extraordinary outcomes. And so you don't just want to go out there and make wild bets all over the place to bet your life. You want to bet in things you can actually win in problems you're obsessed with. So how do you filter good ideas from bad ideas? So here's five lenses. This comes out of a book we wrote called The Startup Playbook about five years ago. They really birthed Bionic with the vice chair of GE, Beth Comstock. So the first lens is proprietary gift. Why you? Why us as an organization? What do we have that no one else in the world has that leads to an unfair advantage? So as biased and pathologically optimistic as we are, if it's not true, it's not true. And the person who has that proprietary gift is going to beat us. These are not one or zero questions. They're questions that are discovered in the first two or three years. The second lens is great ideas typically have extreme focus on a single outcome or impact. They don't have an average idea with 10 things bolted onto it. They're pure, and they're typically obvious, and so obvious that no one sees them. So extreme focus is the second lens. The third one is they're painkillers and not vitamins. They're actually striving a lifelong malignant growing pain in the world for customers and those outcomes. If it's a vitamin, you try it once, you put it down. You should take it every day, but 99% of us don't. Painkillers, you take every day. The fourth lens is an element of the business can be 10 times better. So we call this the 10X. One part of the business is almost impossible to replicate, right? That's secret. We know something and create something that can't be replicated. And that leads to the fifth lens. We have a chance to create permanence. It's also a monopoly, right? We can implicitly and explicitly design impermanence in a relationship with the customer that's good for them and good for us. So an idea, both as an investor and as an entrepreneur, are very common in how you bet your life. My own sons, I want them to bet their life, their career, their passions on things that lead to unfair advantage based on their giftedness and their obsession the same way a company would. They'll live it up personally and have great success, I hope. Is there a tipping point you see where an idea gains traction and really explodes? If you can get an idea to $50 million in a large organization, that $50 million or $100 million idea can go into billions. But the hardest part is they can't choose zero to 50 because it's hard to raise kids. It's hard to raise an idea. You need ideas, a large volume with a lot of failure to discover that commercial truth um, that's going to lead through those lenses to extraordinary outcomes. And so if you don't have volume and diversity and an unbiased view of the world, you just won't get it because it's not a planning skill. It's a discovery skill. 
So what you're saying is it's how you approach the journey that makes all the difference. Yeah, I mean, you have to remember that looking back at a lot of these great ideas, right, that have led to extraordinary outcomes is just a wasteland of failure. So also keep in mind the case of, of you know, Facebook organizing a bunch of universities where, where it began, you know, that was done a decade after Six Degrees patented the idea of a social network, which there were hundreds of during the dot-com era that all failed. So these ideas, these great outcomes looking back look linear, and they're not linear. They're actually, we like to refer them as ladders to the moon. Everyone wants a moonshot. Everyone wants a post-it note, uh, which is, by the way, <laughs> wasn't a post-it note, or Facebook, or SpaceX, or Power, all these companies. They happen because the rungs on the ladder that people walk looking back clearly across are actually discovered out of order, but they're on the offense to go discover them and assemble them they can walk across to win these sort of new planets and new moons of growth. So your team is all about making things happen. What is your environment like? Can you tell us about your space? Um, there really are extraordinary experiences, I have to say. I mean, I study industrial design and I, uh, experiences matter and beauty and sort of the creative process is, is instinctual and required for creating new things. We have now 10, 11,000 square feet and we built it over time. So they have from a stand-up desk to a small war room to a large lab to a boardroom to the Jedi Lounge, all these different places, telepresence, libraries, phone booths. You know, our teams use every inch of our space in different ways that are not at a desk. You know, from community lounges to catering bars, they're constantly and rapidly in cases in all corners of the experiences to do different types of work from venture capital meetings to board meetings to team collaboration to deep thinking and deep work in our little business class lounge. All these different utilities provide the environments that do different type of thinking as teams, as individuals and with investors. That sounds great. If you could give a leader one piece of advice to get started, what would it be? I would just say that we're more of an action-oriented company with action-oriented CEOs. They just do. So there's a lot of (laughs) questions that you could think really hard about and you could go do a lot of analysis on and try to make a really good decision on a lot of things. Not only do we use a growth OS or a Bionic or do we do it ourselves, but they're action-oriented. And I think going on offense is about acting. And so you can do this. This isn't some mysterious thing that is, you have to change the whole company. You can start small and drive the experiences and the methodologies and talent into new problems and needs and work and invest fundamentally differently and create growth and transformation and do it small, but you could do it today. This is about creating a permanent growth capability that's always on. Thanks to David Kidder, CEO of Bionic, for joining us. To read more about what David has to say about installing the mindset and mechanics of venture capital and entrepreneurship in large organizations, read Think Like a Startup in the latest issue of 360 Magazine. You can also find more 360 real-time conversations and recent articles on 360.steelcase.com.